turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter number 23 as we continue our subject on the conversations around the cross. And, you know, volumes of books and articles have been written over the centuries about the last sayings of famous people. And you can just Google that and you'll find that out, that men are always interested in what dying men have to say. I would have to tell you that what we have here in the Gospels is uh, more valuable than anything that you'll find uh, Googled about what the common man has said uh, before he dies. And the Lord Jesus Christ here now has, um, let's look at the circumstances and we're going to look at some of the sayings of, of the Lord. Now you probably have heard of the seven sayings of Jesus upon the cross, which that is a true statement. There are seven sayings of our blessed Lord on the cross. This morning we're going to look at one of those as we did last week. But I want you to look at Luke 23, and I want to pick up in verse number 13 just to kind of give you the setting around the statement that we're going to be observing this morning. In Luke 23, verse number 13, the past 24 hours, uh, before we look at the saying of Jesus this morning, our blessed Lord has been betrayed by one of His own disciples, uh, Judas, and the scattering of His own men and the denial of uh, one of his uh, most vocal men, uh, Peter. And then he went through a mock trial uh, of Caiaphas and Herod and Pilate. And now we have here where he's being rejected by uh, his very own. You know, the Bible does say in John chapter 1, he came unto his own. Talking about the Jew. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. It's one thing for you to be rejected by strangers. It's another thing when you're rejected by your own people and uh, your own kinfolk and your own family. That's a whole different ballgame. And so when you look, look with me in verse number thir- uh, 23, verse 13, I'm going to read through this quickly to get to the verse we want to deal with today. Verse 13, Behold, uh, two of them, excuse, I'm in chapter 24. That's not exactly where I want to be. Chapter 23, verse 13. You ever do that? Hmm? You ever turn to the wrong chapter, right yeah. verse, wrong chapter? Yeah. Verse 13, And Pilate, when he had called the chief priest together the chief priests and rulers and the people. He said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people. Behold, I have examined him before you and have found no fault in this man touching those things whereof you accuse him. No, nor yet Herod. For I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. For of necessity he must release one unto them at the feast. And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man, release unto us Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder was cast into prison. So they're requesting the freedom of a murderer over the Lord Jesus who is innocent. Pilate, therefore willing to release Jesus, spake again to them. But they cried, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! And he said unto them the third time, Why? What evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices, requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of then of the chief priest prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. He released Unto them, him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they desired. 
had desired, and he delivered Jesus to their will. And as they led him away, they laid hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country. And on him they laid on the cross. On him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And there followed him a great company of people and of women which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, daughters, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For hold the days are coming in which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear, and the pap which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? And verse 32 says, And there were also two other male factors led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, which means Golgotha or the place of the skull, there they crucified him and the male factors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Verse 34, now we have the uttering of Jesus in these circumstances here now. In verse 34, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. Father, would you help me again this day to glorify your name. And I pray, Father, that the Holy Ghost would speak to their insides while I speak on the outside. I pray the Word of God would go forth with power, with liberty, with unction, And Lord, I know some folks that are listening today need this message. And so did I as I meditated and studied upon it. And oh God, I pray that you might be glorified by the fruit that it will produce. In Jesus' name, amen. I just read to you the circumstances before he made this statement. I need you to keep your hand where you are and turn with me to Psalm 22. And I want to show you the condition of the Lord Jesus Christ as he made this statement. I want to say to our young people, when people question you about your Bible and the reliance of the Scriptures and about its uh, ability uh, to stay true throughout the centuries, I want to uh, show you here how the Lord Jesus Christ uh, fulfilled prophecy these Psalm 22 was written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born upon this earth. And here in Psalm 22, the Holy Spirit inspired David to pin down some things that would happen that day on the cross. And what it does is it gives us a little bit of a glimpse of what the Lord Jesus Christ is going through. Number one, his physical anguish that he went through but I want to say also the mental anguish that the Lord Jesus went through. The Bible says here in, in, uh, in Psalm 22, verse number 13. Now you say, well, how do you know this is about Jesus? Well, if you'll notice in chapter 22, verse 1, it actually gives you the very statement that Jesus will say later on the cross. When he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But it goes on and describes his physical condition as well. Look down in verse number 13. The Bible says, They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. 
and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. Now keep in mind the reason why that they had had uh, garnered the help of Simon the Cyrenian was because of what they had already done physically uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ by beating him and scourging him with a cat of nine tails by the Roman soldiers, beaten within an inch of his very life. And so that's why he was so weak and so beaten and that they garnered his help to carry the cross. I promise you it wasn't because they were being merciful to Jesus on the way to to his crucifixion. And so this describes now what Jesus Christ is feeling here on the tree. All right? And the scripture says in verse number 15, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me unto the dust of death, for dogs have compassed me. There is the Gentiles, my friend. The dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. And usually when he refers to the assembly, he's referring to the assembly of the elders of Israel. And he says, they pierced my hands and my feet. Any question that this talking about the Lord Jesus Christ? I think not. Verse 17, I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. And notice in verse 18, what, how detailed the scriptures are about the Lord Jesus. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Go back with me to Luke 23. Now, the reason I wanted to show that to you is because I want you to understand the circumstances our Lord is dealing with here on the cross and the condition that he was in both physically and mentally. His anguish. When I say his mental anguish, because you'll notice in verse number, in Luke 23 and down in verse number uh, 34, the latter part of that verse says, and they parted his raiment and cast lots. Do you realize what that implies? Do you remember what Hebrews chapter 12 says about the Lord Jesus Christ, that he endured the cross, despising the shame. And what they have done is they have taken the clothes off of the Lord Jesus Christ. The man who never had to blush because of of sin. And here he is. He has had his raiment taken off of him as he is now hanging there on the tree, bare before man and God. Beaten within an inch of his life, the shame, the anguish of being rejected and the shame of being uncovered and unrobed. Mankind today does not blush very much about being uncovered. But the Word of God says that you should, you should blush and be ashamed for showing your nakedness to strangers. And the Bible says here that these cruel mockings, all of these things have to do, and you need to understand the significance of His prayer at this time. I mean, there He is ashamed of, of His appearance, and here he is, full of anguish of what they have done to him. 
And the last thing that I would have been thinking about would have been to offer up a prayer of intercession for the people for what they have just done to me. I would have been like all the Hollywood movies. I'd have been saying, God, get them. God, kill them. God, crush them. We as Americans, we absolutely thrive on vengeance. We love it when the guilty are punished. We love it when the bad guy gets what's coming to him. There's something within us in all, most of the movies and, uh, and, 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 and even novels, they all go around the theme of the bad guy eventually getting what's coming to him. Because that's man's nature, but it's not God's nature. Now watch this. Look what here. I call this this the cry of intercession from the cross is what I call this. And this, this statement, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. While it is very profound in its simplicity, it is pregnant with theological ramifications. That word then, said Jesus, when mankind was at his worst, God was at his best. When man was illustrating hate, God was manifesting love. I think that's why John wrote over there in chapter 3 verse 1, what manner of love is this? It's like it was from another world is what he's saying. That we're not, we're not used to seeing this kind of love. And when man painted a dark and black canvas on this day, God took a brush and stroked it with light. Jesus fulfills a biblical prophecy that was written hundreds and yea, over a thousand years before he hung here on the tree. Isaiah said that he would be numbered with the transgressors. And here he is hanging between two, three thieves. The Bible says in that passage that he would bear the sins of many. And the third thing, it says that he would make intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53 describes the Lord Jesus Christ. And there at the end of that magnificent chapter in Isaiah 53, he says that he would basically, while he was dying for their transgressions, would intercede for them during that time. Another writer writing hundreds and yea, over a thousand years before Jesus was even born. Writing down what Jesus would do that day on the cross. That he would intercede for transgressors. Now, what I want you to see here in verse number 34. And listen, this is going to be helpful to us today. If you're unsaved today, you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to know that God loves you. And that God loves his son. And that God still honors the prayer of His Son today of intercession. You can be forgiven today. And I want to say to the child of God, it illustrates to us what real godliness is. Do not say that you are a godly man if you cannot pray for your enemies. Do not say that you are a godly Christian yet if you cannot intercede for those who have hurt you the most. This is godliness at its best. Now look with me here. 
He initiates the steps. Did he not? Verse 34. Then said Jesus, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He initiates the steps to forgiveness and reconciliation. When you look at that, I know it confuses you sometimes because it looks as if Jesus is saying, Hey, Father, listen, they've messed up. Just just forget about it. It's no big deal. Just let it go. That's not what he's saying. And you need to understand the Bible to be able to appreciate his prayer of intercession. But can I say to you that the very first thing he says in verse number 34 is the word Father. The word Father. The last time that we hear him saying that is in John 17 when he is praying for us. But here in John 17, now he's praying for the sinners. I believe when you see him saying, Father, I believe you're seeing him manifesting as a man, as being the God-man, but yet there in his flesh, Jesus is crying out to his Father and he is crying out in confidence about the nature of his Father. And I need you to understand this about him. Do you know what the most reoccurring theme or thought or verse, the thought with that verse, maybe not exactly that verse, but the theme of that verse is in the Bible? Do you know what it is? The one that mentions most about the nature of God that is repeated more often in the Bible than any other verse? In Acts 34... Excuse me, in Exodus 34, when Moses is about to, well, he's asked, he said, God, can I see your face? And God says to Moses, he said, listen, I'm going to pass by this rock and I'm going to put my hand up. He said, I'm going to let you see my hind parts, but I'm not going to let you see my face. And the scripture said, this is one of the most magnificent passages in the Bible. Where the invisible God speaks to man and where he says, I'm going to pass by and I'm going to let you see my hind parts but not my face. And as he passes by, the scripture says that what the Lord begins to proclaim, what it does is it, 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 he begins to proclaim his very being, his very nature, his disposition. And in that, in that passage of scripture, when he does that, here's what he says. He begins to proclaim and say, he said, Thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. Well, isn't everyone guilty? Yes. So is that a conflicting statement? No. Because you will not be forgiven if you refuse to acknowledge your transgression and repent of your sins. Jonah and Joel said this about God. He said, Thou art a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. When does God repent of the evil? 
when God changes his mind, when you change your mind. God will forgive you when you repent of your evil. He will repent of the judgment that he is going to bring upon you. David said, For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive. God is ready to forgive. I'm going to ask you that. Are you? Are you ready? Are you ready to forgive? Oh, Lord. Some of you said, No, Brother Roger, I'm not ready yet to forgive. I appreciate your honesty. But you know who it's hurting the most? It's hurting you the most. For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. You see, there's a condition there. If you'll call upon him, that's why it says that if you'll call upon the name of the Lord, thou shalt be saved. You see, there's a condition here. So in Luke 23, I want you to notice what Jesus says here in verse 34. He says, Father, forgive them. He says, for they know not what they do. His confidence is manifested to his Father. By the way, Jesus is very consistent on this subject about forgiveness. Remember Matthew 16 when he taught his, they asked him about prayer and he begins to teach him about, about some principles of prayer. And he says, I want you to forgive. He said, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And they went on to say, you know, that if you'll forgive other men of their transgressions, that your father will forgive you of your transgressions. Now, regardless of what you think about that, it's obvious that Jesus thought forgiveness was a big deal. And so did the father. Remember the story that Jesus gave later on in that particular book in Matthew 18 when it said that there was a king who had a servant who owed him, let's say, a million dollars, and the servant could not pay him? And so the servant was going to be punished and cast into prison. The servant begged for mercy and said, please give me another opportunity. And the the king had mercy upon him and compassion upon him and forgave him. And so this very man who's forgiven of much goes out and he finds the people who who owe him not even close to what he owed the king. And those people begin to ask for mercy and he said, nope. He said, I'm going to cast you into prison. And word got back to the king that he who had been shown much mercy had refused to show a little mercy. And as a result of that, that man was punished for his lack of mercy. One of the things that Jesus kept repeating is that to us is that mercy will be shown to those who show mercy. Now, Luke 23. I want you to notice something that really is not... uh, something that we can comprehend, but it's something we have to try to understand. He says in verse 34, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. All of the light that they had been given, all of the preaching that they had heard, and Jesus looks upon that crowd, and I think not just that crowd, but the crowd beyond them, for all we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us have gone to our own way. He looks upon them and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And I think the emphasis is on what. I think that they are ignorant of the significance of what they have just done. I don't think that they are ignorant of the fact that they have just taken an innocent man and out of envy have put him to death so that they could protect the nation politically. They feel like that they've been motivated to save the nation by 
sacrificing this man. They are not ignorant of the fact that they have crucified him, but they are ignorant of the significance of what they have done and who he is. Are you, are you going to be okay with God just because you sin ignorantly? Is it okay as long as you don't know and you didn't know better? Hmm? Is that what that's implying? Did you know in the Old Testament that God wrote in the book of Numbers and in the book of Leviticus to cover the sin of ignorance? Did you know that? I mean, the word ignorant is used over and over, the sin of ignorance. Did you know that um, when you sin ignorantly, you are still not sinning innocently? You are not innocent because you are ignorant of what you have done. I recall the time last year that I took Brother Kenneth and Brooke down to Texas City Dyke and got in our boat. We went over and fished in an area where that I'd fished a couple of times with Brother Kenny and also with my wife and, and with the Gavin. We'd caught a number of fish and I was there. And, but that day when I was with them, here came the Coast Guard. And the Coast Guard was calling me, and they called me over my boat. They went through my boat. They asked me, said, what are you doing over here fishing? I said, I'm trying to catch fish. <laughs> and they said, you're not supposed to be here. I said, I'm not? They said, no. I said, well, I did not know that. And basically, they looked at him and said, and said well, you know what? You should have known that. And he said, because there's a sign that you pass by. He said, it's not a big sign, but there's a sign. And it says, do not enter. Okay? And you know one of the reasons why I didn't see that sign? Is because I didn't want to see that sign. (laughs) Do you understand? Because I wanted to fish over there. All right? So, and so what I'm saying is, is that I pleaded ignorance. And so what does he do? He gets out his ticket book. He's the law. And so he goes through my boat. I mean, with fine-tooth comb looking for anything that could be wrong in that boat. And he looks at me, and, and really, he looks at me, and he could have. You see, a judge doesn't have the right to make the laws. They have to they look at you whether you're guilty or not guilty. Then they have to impose the law. But occasionally you may find someone who might at that moment show you a little mercy. And so he considered my ignorance. And I'm sure it was my innocent looking face that helped. And my sweet disposition. I'm sure that helped. You know, when, and and you know what, when you're, when you're guilty of something, you sure can talk nice. But anyway, I didn't know what he was fixing to do. I didn't know if he was fixing to confiscate my boat. I didn't know if he was fixing to put Kenneth and Brooke in jail for being with me. I didn't know. All I know is is that he looked at me and said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. He said, "Uh, I'm going to consider your ignorance and I'm going to give you a warning. He says, and I'm going to tow you out of here. He says, but don't you ever come back. Okay? It'll be different when you come back. All right? Because I've been warned. Okay, and I did tell him I was sorry. And so I have been back down there, but I did not pass that sign. 
Now, last time I went down there, Nathan and I was in my boat, and we went right up to the sign and fished. But we didn't go past the sign because I knew in my heart that I would be sinning presumptuously. I would be violating against the knowledge that I possess now of the law, and then the full extent of the law could fall upon me, and I would have no recourse, no pleading of ignorance. Did you know in the Old Testament when you sinned ignorantly, that you were still guilty. And that even though you may not have known the full significance of what you were doing, you were going to pay some price for what you had done. And then there was a sacrifice that you could offer up when you pleaded ignorance that you could bring to the priest and the priest could offer it up and you would offer it up to the Lord and it would be called the sin of ignorance. But he also says that when you come to light or knowledge of what you have done, then it would be a different level. And then it would be a different level even of your sacrifice to the Lord. You remember Jesus gave the illustration of some of the servants who knew the Lord's will and they went out and did what they wanted to. And there were some who did not know the Lord's will and they went out and did the same thing. But the ones who knew were given more stripes than the ones who were not, did, were not aware of some things. You say, well, that's... That's, that's pretty good. No, it's not pretty good because you're still going to get stripes. You understand? It's still going to be painful. Now, my point being here is, is that Jesus is looking at these people and he understands in his heart that they do not understand the significance of what they are doing to him. That's hard to imagine that he would think that way. Because when somebody hurts me, I think that they should be fully aware of the significance of the pain that they have caused me or my family. That they are without excuse. And that's the way you feel if somebody hurts you or hurts your family or hurts somebody that you love. Is that you want them to fool the full weight of the law because ignorance is no excuse. That's the way we feel. But that's the difference between humanity and divinity. That's the difference between ungodliness and godliness. So here he is. And by the way, when ignorance is confronted with truth and knowledge, and Jesus said in Luke 17, when somebody offends you, that you ought to go to them and reveal to them what they have done to you. And light then comes upon them. That, that is when they are confronted with truth, they are now responsible to repent, which then lays the ground for you to be reconciled back to that individual. Some wish not to know what they have done. Some know and they don't care what they have done. But some became aware of the significance of their actions. Now listen to this. But it wasn't Jesus who told them that. It was somebody else who told them that. Forty-five, about 40 days later, there's a man by the name of Peter that stands up and preaches on the day of Pentecost. And as he preaches, he puts this, the picture in perspective to those very people who stood there and cried crucify him. He put it in perspective of who this man was and what he was and what they had done. He put it in perspective. Do you know sometimes that when you've been hurt by somebody, 
that you need to wait and let somebody else put it in perspective to that individual what they have done to you. Did you know that? You need to wait on the Lord and let Him use somebody else to show them what they have done and how much damage they've done to you, to your family. Can you do that? I don't know. But I know this, that Peter stood up and boldly preached this. And you know what happened? Those very same people that had cried crucify him, they looked at that and they saw the significance of what they had done. They saw the significance of who it was. And the Bible says they were pricked in their hearts and they said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? And Peter said, you need to repent. You need to repent. And you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to follow Him in baptism. Identify with Him. Let Him become your Savior. And the Bible says 3,000 of them did that day. And Jesus' prayer was answered when those men were aware of what they had done and they asked God to forgive them. I do not agree with what Joel Osteen has said many times that that people are aware that they are sinners and they don't need to be reminded or made aware of that. I say that is not true. I will say that the conscience of man is a light but it's not a faithful light and a good light but it is a light. But I'll say that's the reason why God has called men to preach. That's why God has called you to be a witness, that you would open up your Bible and take that flashlight out and show them, you know, the significance of what they have done. You, you, you talk to some guy and say, listen, uh, do you have a drinking problem? Yeah, 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 I have, I have a drinking problem. Well, are you a drunkard? Well, at times I am. Well, what's the big deal about that? I'm just hurting me and hurting anybody else. Because they don't understand the significance of the transgression. You talk to somebody who has committed adultery. They said, yeah, yeah, I fooled around a little bit. Yeah, I've had an affair, but it was no, it was no big deal. I got past that. We, wait a minute. Do you understand the significance of the damage that you have done with the sin of adultery? You go on down the list with lying, with thievery, with homosexuality, with fornication, with murder. You just go on down the list. People justify what they have done. But when the light comes on, you begin to see the significance. I think that even after we've gotten saved and we start studying our Bibles, we begin to realize, wow, what a sinner. That's why Paul could say, you know, that the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Because the longer you get in the Bible, the more you go to church and you hear the Word of God, you begin to realize, oh my goodness, I didn't realize, I knew I was sick, but I didn't realize I was that sick. Sinning ignorantly, sinning presumptuously, yes, it is different. I think one of the illustrations of that is between Peter and Judas. Peter had a bad day. Judas had a bad heart. 
One was restored. The other one was rejected. There is a difference. I want to close with some practical and applicable conclusions from this message this morning. This passage reveals to us man's greatest need is to be forgiven. The first words of Jesus from the cross is, Father, forgive them. Your greatest need, and some people are not even aware that they need to be forgiven. That's where the preaching comes in. That's where the church is here for. That's why God has given us His Word, that we might realize what great danger we're in and what great sinners we really are in the eyes of God. And that's not a popular message. That is the offense of the cross. Man's greatest need is to be forgiven, but there are some out there that may be watching and even some in this room who feel the weight and who desire to be forgiven and are not sure that they can be. Man's greatest need is to be forgiven and his transgressions forgiven so that he might be reconciled to God. I will say that God is a just and a righteous judge. And he will enforce the law and the penalty of the law. And the only time that he will disregard the penalty of the law is when justice has been satisfied. And this is when Jesus Christ gave himself on the cross to be the propitiation or the sacrifice or the substitute for your transgression and for mine. And it is there that he bare our sins in his own body on the tree. It is then when that individual will put his faith and his trust and his hope in the Lord Jesus Christ alone and what he did on the cross. But God the Father will then take your unrighteousness and replace it with the righteousness that is provided through Jesus Christ, your substitute, that then the judge can say, okay, the price has been paid. I forgive you. The penalty has been erased because the price has been paid by someone else. Do you know why God forgives sinners today? According to 1 John chapter 2, verse number 12, you know why your sins have been forgiven? The Bible says it is for His name's sake. For His name's sake, your sins have been forgiven. Is God the Father still responding to that prayer? If a man comes and bows his knee before God and says, God, I have sinned against you, And I know that and I cannot fix that. But by faith, I believe that you sent Jesus Christ to be the propitiation for my sins. And I know we don't understand all those fancy words, but you just believe that Jesus died in your place. That God raised him from the dead, proving that he was the Son of God. And Lord, I'm sorry for what I have done. God, I'm sorry. I acknowledge my transgressions. I ask for mercy I believe that Jesus is the Savior. And, I, and I'm not saying you've got to get all them words in that order and just right. It's when a man believes in his heart and calls upon the Lord from his heart. The Bible says that God will save him. I think the illustration of the Old Testament is David 
had a great friend. You know, if you watch an old Western, you'll see sometimes a, a cowboy and an Indian. Sometimes they'll, they'll cut one hand, they'll cut the other hand, and they'll grab a hold and say, we are now blood brothers. You, you, you've, heard, you've probably seen that or heard about that. Jonathan loved David, and David loved Jonathan. I mean, it was a great love. Friends, brothers, beyond that, they loved each other. And when Jonathan one day died fighting and defending with his father, his body was placed upon the wall, and when David heard about that, he wept and cried. And he said, man, I'll tell you what, he said, I, if there's anything I can do, he said, you know what I'm going to do? He said, if, if Jonathan has any children out there anywhere, anybody that's connected to Jonathan, he said, for Jonathan's sake and for his name's sake, he said, I'm going, to, I'm going to bring that person and set them at my table. And they're going to be like a son unto me. And there happened to be one who could not on his own get to David. His name was Mephibosheth. And he was crippled. And he had issues. And the king heard about it and sent out and sent a chariot and picked him up and brought him to his own house. And they bathed him and cleaned him up and set him at the king's table all for Jonathan's sake. And the reason why God has forgiven you, it wasn't because of your crocodile tears. It was because of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. And when you acknowledge that and you turn to him, God will forgive you for Jesus' name's sake and set you a place at his table. And in closing, I want to say to the Christian. Turn with me to Acts chapter 7, and let's close with this thought. I feel as a pastor for over 40 years that I have had to encourage, and I have not been very, I don't have a great success rate at this, of trying to convince one believer how important it is for him to forgive another believer. Baptists are known for holding grudges, ill feelings. And rather than forgive and reconcile, they'll just go from church to church most of their life rather than settle in and become a godly Christian. If you're going to serve the Lord, you're going to have to learn to deal with offenses, both that which you've done to you and that which you have done to others. You say, well, I'm not aware of anything that I've done. What if somebody asked you today and they confronted you with it? How would you react to that? Would you defend yourself or would you say, you know what, I wasn't aware that I had done that much damage to you. I, I, I was thinking only about myself. I'm sorry. Acts chapter 7, look at this. Look with me, please, in verse 55. I guess if you're ever going to be godly, if you're going to be like Jesus, when somebody does hurt you, you're going to have to initiate forgiveness by praying for that person. Did you know that? You start praying for them. You say, well, I can't even think. I can't even stand to think about them. Well, that person right now that you cannot stand to even think about. And if that name has even come across your mind that it causes pain in your heart, let me ask you, just as you exercise faith, and, and Jesus Christ to save you, let me ask you to exercise some faith and love in your heart to do this for His name's sake. Now watch this. Acts 
755. But he being, this is Stephen, he being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfast into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And they cried with a loud voice, the crowd that killed Jesus, the Pharisees and Sadducees are doing the same to Stephen. And they stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice. Do you think he was crying with a loud voice, Brother Doug, because he thought God was hard of hearing? Hmm? No. He wasn't crying out with a loud voice because of the one listening in this direction. He cried with a loud voice because those who were listening in this direction. He said, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when they had said this, he fell asleep. One more verse and we're going to the house. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And look with me in verse number 32. Some of your spiritual problems, where things are damned up in your life, some of your, and it creates health problems. It creates health issues. When you have bitterness and grudges and unforgiveness in your heart, it affects the anxiety level, the stress level, and you will not have and possess or walk in the peace of God in your heart. It creates all kinds of issues for you. The Bible says here in the book of Colossians, excuse me, Ephesians, look at this. Pray for that person. No matter how, if we were to ask you what's eating at you, you probably might even be ashamed to tell us how small that transgression because when you bring it out in the light, sometimes the things that offend us are very petty and personal. And we don't want anybody to know about it, so we hide it. But it leaks out on you. When you begin to withdraw or you get bitter or your words become sharp, there's something wrong inside. Ephesians 4, look at this. You pray for that person, whoever it is or whoever they are. You pray for them. And listen, forgive them before God. Forgive them in your heart. It doesn't release them from being accountable for what they've done to you. But you forgive them in your heart to God. And when the opportunity comes that they become aware of what they've done and how much damage they've done, then you'll be ready to forgive them on this level. But don't wait till that happens because otherwise you're going to be carrying that baggage all that time. And what if they never acknowledge it? You're going to be carrying that to your grave. And some people have been done some horrific things. Look in Ephesians chapter 4. Look in verse number 31 and 32. Look at this. He says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, 
even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Let's stand together, please. Let's bow our heads for just a moment. We're going to have an invitation this morning. I ask you, if you need to be saved this morning, that you would come, give your heart to Jesus, ask Him to forgive you, receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, be forgiven of all your transgressions. Thank God I'm free, free, I'm free. God has forgiven me of my sins. What a blessing. That's one of the benefits of being saved is the forgiveness of sins. Then I ask you as a believer, if there is anything in your heart that you need to go to God with this. Ask Him for the grace. And listen, forgiving is a choice. It's not a feeling. It's a choice of obedience to God. It's an act of obedience to God. And saying, Lord, I pray for that individual and call them out by name before the Lord. Say, God, I pray for them right now. I pray, Lord, that you would, God, help them and grant them, I pray, knowledge of their offense and And God, I pray that you would, Lord, grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. And then, Lord, help me to be ready when the time comes. If we're ever in a conversation, that I'd have the grace to forgive them like you forgave me. Just the attitude matters to God. The willingness matters to God. Don't carry that stuff around like a bunch of baggage. It's not going to get you anywhere. Not going to get you anywhere. Just dump it. Our Heavenly Father, I, I look at this passage and I'm amazed that Jesus would say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We all in here have been hurt and damaged by others. I think sometimes we forget that maybe we have done things to others that we're not aware of as well. I pray, Father, you'd help us as a church. I know the Holy Ghost will be grieved and quenched if we don't deal with hard feelings and quarrels and surmisings and feelings toward others. God grant us, I pray, that we might make the steps to have revival of drawing out of you and yielding ourselves to you that we may become a godly person like Jesus who when he was reviled, reviled not again. Help us, dear God, as a church family, please. In Christ's name, I pray that our people would receive the truth and respond to it by faith.